Hello, Internet. My name is Walter C.A.D.'s Fedchuk, and welcome back to the Final Cut Podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. Uh, I truly hope that you all enjoyed uh, our last episode talking about Paramount Plus's Players, uh, the mockumentary about a fictional LCS team called Team Fugitive, and the uh, tumultuous relationship between their star support cream cheese and the up-and-coming rookie organism. Uh, I know that that uh, Chase, myself, and Kristen had a lot of fun uh, talking about it and recording it, and I, I really hope that you have enjoyed it. Uh, that being said, you know, after we did something that was so mainstream, uh, so so funny and, and in-your-face uh, and, and episodic, we decided, hey, let's step back here. Let's find something fucking weird. <laughs> let's, let's talk about something weird. And... The only person on the planet that I can think of that that would nominate this movie and would want to talk about something this weird and AP literature-esque is my good friend and podcast co-host, Chase Wassener. Chase, how was Space Chimps 3? Oh, I mean, honestly, I didn't think they could top Space Chimps 2 uh, and that $14,000 in revenue it got from the box office, but... They found a way. They updated the Wiimote that was the magical MacGuffin into a Switch to make it more modern. Um, Patrick Warburton, still there, still coming back for all of the Space Chips films. I still can't believe that he he was like the only member who came back for Space Chimps 2, a film that does exist, unlike Space Chimps 3, which only exists in my dreams and or nightmares. I... It's... Man, what a series that was. Uh, one day I will convince Walter to watch Space Chimps 2 with me and we'll just release the podcast and it'll be 60 minutes of just white noise. <laughs> well, you know, but the, the one year anniversary of the podcast is coming up. So perhaps, mm. perhaps that could be an offer. And Chase, I think Space Chimps 3 would actually be your purgatory. <laughs> I think it would need to exist in between the realms in, in, in some form of fashion. Mm, I could see that. I could see that. Zartog just forever following me in my nightmares. <laughs> but that being said, no, we are going to talk about George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing. Uh, and, and basically how we came up with this was uh, after we finished recording Players, Chase and I were like, oh yeah, we need to, we need to pick another movie to watch. Uh, what do we want to watch? And Chase is like, well, this movie is in theaters. And I was like, yeah, it's at the theater across from my house. All right, let's let's fucking watch it. So, Chase, since you were the one that that nominated it and you were the one that, that you know, kind of put this forth, um, I really had no initial opinions or information about it. I had no idea what was going into. So why don't you give me sort of your your preface into why you wanted to watch this movie? Yeah, so I had been in the theaters uh, recently. I, I think it was, uh, God, it was one of our recent Rough Drafts uh, episodes uh, that had required me to go back. Uh, Bullet Train, of course. Bullet Train, the trailers in advance. Uh, the local theater near me has like three uh, three screens. It's a very like nice local theater. It does some old school stuff, but... They only have two trailers per film, and one of them was 3,000 Years of Longing. And I looked at this film, and I said, okay, we've got Edris Elba as a djinn. We've got Tilda Swinton, who is just fantastic no matter what she does. And we're going on some magical, surrealist adventures through, like, old djinn stories, Tales of the Arabian Nights style. What could go wrong? I, it had to be interesting. And then it became more interesting because I started looking at it on Twitter and nobody knew what the fuck this movie was. Nobody was talking about it. When people did talk about it, it was, wait, that's out? Or I had no idea this was a thing in comments under articles about how terribly it was doing at the box office. So it was a very kind of weird place that this film holds. Talented people working on a, a film. George Miller the guy who did Mad Max Fury Road, all the Mad Max films, uh, as well as the Happy Feet films and Babe. Weird uh, filmography from this guy. Uh, but he's eclectic and he only does things that he finds interesting to him. And so it's like, okay, 
Something has to be going on here. What is this film that has these talented people in a premise that should have some clear interest to a larger audience that the marketing department uh, of MGM clearly had no idea how to sell and didn't even fucking try. And for the record, that trailer lies to you. If you think that Tilda Swinton is going back in time to be part of these adventures, that is not the film that it is. Uh, It very much tries to hint that way. Uh, She's in a hotel room for 90% of this film. Um, So it's not that. But what it is, is weird and surreal and fascinating. And it's a film that's really bounced around in my head since I saw it because there's nothing quite like it. I would 100% agree. This was this surreal is is probably the best adjective that you can put on the front of it. And to talk about the the marketing campaign, yeah, literally knew absolutely nothing about it. When Chase mentioned it to me, I had to Google it and be like, "All right, what what's going on?" And it was Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. I'm like, "Okay, that works." And then when I mentioned that I wanted to see this film to my partner, she's like, oh, well, I'll, I'll go with you. Like, it's Labor Day weekend. We went on Tuesday, $3, you know, National Movie Day. So our tickets were only $3. And I feel like I cheated George Miller out of more money because I only paid $6 for us to see it. But she was like, well, what's it about? And I'm like, ah, well, I don't really know, but Idris Elba's in it. And she's like, I'm totally sold. Idris Elba's in it. So the fact they didn't just go, hey, Idris Elba is a gin and just show him with no shirt on. Like, that already means MGM had no clue what they wanted to do marketing-wise. But then, yeah, if you go back and you look at the trailers, you really don't have a good sense of what this movie is supposed to be. Is it supposed to be some sort of, you know, buddy kind of action-y adventure? I wasn't expecting, you know, Tilda Swinton to get in, like, fisticuffs with anyone, but, you know, (laughs) kind of an adventure movie. Is it supposed to be a romantic movie? Is it supposed to be a rom-com? Is it actually deep down supposed to be a horror movie? Like, it was very hard to tell what I was going to go into and watch. And then after, like, 45 minutes and Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba were still in white bathrobes in a hotel hotel room i was like the rest of this movie could just be this and i'm totally sold on it like i'm totally invested it could just be the two of them telling tales back and forth to each other and i'm i'm done i am good to go i am ready so chase besides obviously they didn't get the marketing right but what did this movie do right to actually have it stick in your head now you know a week plus later well, it, it has this really interesting mix of, you know, you mentioned surrealism and, and you start the film with this kind of like these weird spirits are like following her as she's going around Istanbul after she arrives and are messing with her, despite the fact that she has not found the jinn yet. So I have no idea where the hell that comes from. And it's not really explained, even though those figures do show up in some of the Jin stories, which implies that they were connected to the Jin. So like, is that a time thing where they knew that she would eventually find the lamp that would lead? It's very silly, but it's very fun and interesting and weird. Um, and you know, it has this, like, there's a love of stories that we see a lot of films try to capture because films love talking about how much, what they do as a medium is important and powerful, right? There are so many films about how powerful films are or how special this particular film was. Um, There are so many films about, like, this particular creative person and how special they were. And this film is tangential to that genre because it is very much an ode to the classic Jin story, right? This idea of getting three wishes and it never quite goes the way you want it to. There's always like these different limiting factors that end up steering things in a direction that you didn't see coming and therefore comes back to haunt you in some way. And it very easily could have just fallen back on those stereotypes, but it's also a deconstruction of those stereotypes because Tilda Swin's character, Alethea, um, is very aware of that. She is someone who is a mass, like she, she has her doctorate in this kind of field. She knows stories. She's doing a Ted talk presentation on these kinds of stories and their value in a modern society. How do you contrast 
the kind of folklore and mythology that used to exist to serve as an explanation as to how the world works when we now have science to tell us how the world works. And so you have this like meshing of the logical versus the emotional. There's the logical breakdown of like, well, here's all the reasons that making a wish would go terribly or that all these people are falling into these traps that I've heard a thousand times before and do not want to fall into myself versus the emotional, this not just the emotion of wanting something that the jinn could potentially fulfill, but the emotions of the jinn himself. Idris Elba does such a fantastic job in this film of selling the heartbreak and pain that comes from the lifestyle that is intrinsic to being a jinn. Um, being stuck in a lamp for a super hard time, being rejected by people that he loves, even though let's ignore the fact that the Queen of Sheba is his cousin technically. Don't worry about that. It's fine. It's Listen, fine. Listen, it's a different time. It's a di- it, was, it was indeed a different time, as seen by Solomon's like super weird instrument that he plays. And the visuals for that, it's just, it's ambitious. It takes big swings. Do all of them work? No, but it's always taking a swing. It's always trying to do something. And it's always, you know, the there was a reviewer from Variety uh, who I think put it well, where it's like, this film dares you to figure out what comes next. This film dares you to think that you know where these stories are going to go and where it's ultimately going to lead. And while most things do end up tying together, it does enough to keep you on your toes and catch you off guard that it's it's easy for this film to stick with you i would i would agree um you know in in the moments after any time i watch a film especially if i go with my partner you know there there's a, a very short drive home we're talking five minutes across the street and in that, you know, short drive, I kind of coalesce my thoughts. And by the time we get to our front door, now I'm starting to babble to her about my thoughts and my my interests. And, you know, what did that mean? What did this mean? Oh, what did I like? What did I hate? And this, I barely even got to the car before I went, you know, this was a watchable Wes Anderson movie to me. There was <laughs> the, the, you know, kind of the bright colors, the sort of weird pseudo-reality setting that there's this sort of transposition of fantasy layered over the top of it. Excuse me. And uh, and I just, I was like, if Wes Anderson was like this, when I watch a Wes Anderson movie, and I don't want to turn this into a Wes Anderson critique, but this will probably be the closest that we ever get to me talking about a Wes Anderson film, <laughs> is that there are times during a Wes Anderson film I feel like an idiot where the movie is so pretentious and talks so far above my head that I just, I just, I'm like, I don't, I don't care. It's like, it's like when your wealthy cousin comes in and starts talking about the stock market and about how he, you know, was in Monaco last week and, you know, that kind of eh, uppity air. And this had all of that, but at the same time, didn't feel didn't feel scholarly in a way. It didn't really make you like think you had to pull out a thesaurus to understand everything and to describe everything. You could just kind of consume it and go, well, this is what this, you know, this is what the warning is of this story that the jinn is telling that, that, uh, you know, un- unrequited love or, or love taken forcefully, you know, it is not true love. And I, I don't want to bring JK Rowling into it, but it's sort of like how Voldemort, is born you know his mother forces a love potion onto someone and then you know child born out of uh, love potion etc etc uh in the first story so it it was it made you think it made you think and then when you when you kind of thought you know oh yeah i'm, I'm done thinking about the movie here i am a couple days later all of a sudden a little plot point catches you again and you go like oh because the reality is, right before we started, Chase and I, you know, we, we make our notes and we talk about it. And I, I go, oh, how many stories were there? And we, we calculate it through it. And, you know, I just remembered, like, no, actually, there's there's five stories here. There's five stories over the course of the movie. The, the first story being about uh, the jinn, sort of his background, and obviously the, the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. 
Uh, the second is, uh, you know, this unrequited love or forced love, this concubine in the palace of Suleiman the Magnificent and her uh, requesting to the jinn that he makes her, uh, his, uh, Suleiman's son fall in love with her. And then that she becomes pregnant with the, the son, uh, Mustafa's, uh, child. And then the son is killed because, uh, they think he's undermining Suleiman's reign. And then the next one is about two royal brothers, uh, Murad the fourth and Ibrahim. And Murad goes off to war and becomes this bloodthirsty warmongerer and then passes after, uh, after an elderly man that he had befriended dies uh, from, he, he, you know, uh, Murad dies from alcoholism. And then Ibrahim, who has been basically kept childlike by his mother so that he will never be a threat to, uh, to Murad so he can protect Ibrahim, uh, is now forced to, to take the mantle. And he is, he is a child. He is a baby. And then uh, the fourth story about the wife of a Turkish merchant, Zephyr. And what she asked for is she asked for knowledge. So She's given all this knowledge, um, and then eventually all this knowledge, you know, consumes her and, and pushes her so far uh, that she she can never really grasp what she wants, and it has become you know the monkey's paw. What what you ask for then you know is is poisonous to you or whatnot, and then she no longer wants to know of the jinn. And then what I thought of twenty minutes ago as we were talking is that the fist story, the fist story is of. Tilda Swinton's character is of Alethea, is about how she comes to find the djinn and how she, who is a, a, a she's a scholar, a narratist, I believe is what they call her, but like her doctorate is in stories, isn't talking about, you know, uh, different mythologies and all of these things and trying to come up with like a unifying theory that's behind all the stories that, that we tell each other. And that's the fifth story. And here I am a week Later, just realizing that and just being like, oh, duh, like, here we go. So was there anything that, that like, has kind of cropped up later on, maybe not after the first watch, but maybe, you know, any shower thoughts that had appeared about it that, you know, you were kind of um, surprised you came up with? Yeah, you know, I think, I think a good chunk of it for me as I've kind of sat with the film is how the different elements all tie together, you know? Like, there's this idea of, you know, oh, here's the the wish about wanting to fall in love and how it ultimately ends up hurting uh, and potentially killing one of the, the people involved in it, depending on whether you're looking at uh, the Suleiman story or whether you're looking at the Zafir story. And then you see that with the Jin now in the modern age, uh, unable to handle uh, being in the modern world because jinns are apparently based on electromagnetic forces, something that's kind of hinted at early and is another thing I had to go back to, where like he talks about having a headache at one point in the Istanbul room, and she's like, well, I wish your headache would go away then. He's like, that's not a real wish. Um, but like it was set up, this idea of like playing with technology and how technology kills the kind of mythology right it, it all like that theme very much is there when it taught when it's it comes down to the reason why their relationship isn't able to work anymore it's all connected to that larger theme which is really cool and really smart um and it's something that i hadn't quite made that connection of the uh like to the previous scenes in which those themes had been there um I, I think there's a lot of good stuff when it comes to, you know, looking at just the the way in which each story that the Jin tells hits another angle of why people do not trust Jin. If you are in that world, if you understand the genre, that's something that a lot of films aren't willing to do, right? You know, you don't want to have your character be too meta aware of what's going on you don't have to if it's a story about stories and the person who you're telling the story to is an expert on stories they can just be like aha see i knew it because i know these things about the stories and your story mirrors that checkmate and it's like well yeah there like it it really does do like this 
Like these are the big things you would talk about in every story hits one of those things. Um, and there's just this, I guess there's this constant run with a Jin in which regularly he gets too attached to people and is punished by it, whether it's getting too attached to Shiva and then ending up getting imprisoned uh, or with Zephyr, where it's, you know, he gets too attached and gets a little bit too, um, like, not controlling, but certainly uh, perhaps, um, like, like, doesn't give her enough space. Like, she doesn't have the ability to, um, to be her own person. And in the same way, when he is obsessed and desperately trying to get uh, out of the uh, the lamp after having been invisible in the Murad and Ibrahim story and how he scares off the woman and therefore gets thrown back to the bottom of the sea. Like, there's this running theme about the clear character flaw that the Jin has. And it is this idea of caring so much that he cannot restrain himself when it would be best for him to do so, which is really understandable if you think about being trapped somewhere for thousands of years, 3,000, one might say, uh, how someone with the chance to live again might go a bit overboard on that. But tying that also into the kind of person that Alethea is, it, it all just, it all works, man. It's all really clever in how its themes tie together. Does every plot point tie together? Probably not. I still don't understand why she was seeing visions of those people before um, she had gotten anywhere near the lamp, but that doesn't really matter because it's about setting a mood, and the mood hits. The tone hits. And the just the ambition of, of tying some of these long-running things together and trusting the audience to get it um, is something that I really like about this film. Did it surprise you when she wished for the djinn to fall in love with her? No, I wanted to be. I was maybe at least like, maybe the immediate response of that being something that was her true wish. Because she establishes multiple times in like her own um, kind of uh, narration internally that she was perfectly comfortable being on her own and she was very happy doing her own thing. But yet there's kind of this theme of like, what do women really want? And so, you know, once you hear that, I think with a amount of genre savviness that, well, it's going to be love, right? Everyone wants to be loved. I don't think that's something uh, intrinsic to women in particular, though women are often put in that role when it comes to how story motivations are handled. But for someone who is so obsessed with stories, but having lived such a kind of more secluded life, uh, choosing love as the wish here, it makes sense. It makes more sense than anything else she could have thrown out there, uh, outside of her initial attempts to wish for very mundane things in hope of using all three and getting everyone to move on with their lives. Um, it works because I think the jinn relationship has been built up over these stories and you can see alethea see herself in the people that he falls in love with especially zephyr who is another person who almost like if you were to make a description it she's alethea but a couple centuries earlier just wanting to digest as much knowledge as she could and so it all works it's not like forced or um even something that feels like trite, as a lot of these things can be. Um, but it is one of those things where when you think about it, what else could it have been, right? What else ties the story and the themes that we're getting, if not that? I will say it wasn't a surprise because based on the, the as you said, the previous stories, that there were two options presented to her, basically. There was love, and whether it was, you know, with the djinn or with someone else, whatever, or it's knowledge. And to me, it's it's curious, and, and ultimately, I think it it's leads to a better story that she pursued the love angle. And I do, I think there is something sort of 
very human about seeing someone with a, a similar pain, especially loneliness, uh, and especially, you know, separation from, from the rest of, like, the human populace in a way. And, and, and loneliness and, and, uh, doesn't have to be a, a physical thing. It very much is something that can just be mental, and you can be the loneliest person uh, in the middle of an extremely crowded room. You could be the loneliest person when you're surrounded by friends and family and, and, you know, you should be happy and, and, and feel loved and all of these things. So it does feel almost obvious once it happens that like, oh, of course she's going to want to do it. But to me, the the verbiage and the way she presents it, it's just, it's beyond just like, well, we're both lonely. Like, hey, why don't we get together? And it's her wishes that she wants a, a, a love for the ages. She wants that story uh, type of romance and it makes sort of the the actual romance itself and the continuation of everything from here um, work that much better because it does sort of become one of those epic romantic stories as it progresses on and and you know the 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 a threat to it so as she tries to you know take him uh back to the uk which it was poorly i think explained in the moment and if you forgot about him saying i'm electromagnets and being like i can't she can't can't go through the the x-ray is like a little lost i think in translation <laughs> it's it's a little moment where you're kind of confused by that scene until you remember the you know electro uh magnetic signals and and fields and is further emphasized that this is sort of a, a forbidden love by the interaction between Alethea and her neighbors and, and the racism that they sort of portray. And then uh, the, the moment where she goes over with the, the stack to present it to them. And then, you know, the djinn just walks up and is like, sup, I'm, I'm with her. And then she's like, oh yeah, he's going to be staying here for a while. And you see both women immediately are just like, we're not racist anymore. This is a gorgeous man. <laughs> like, yeah. It was sort of a little little funny moment. I mean, that is so much of the UK, though, is it not? I, I am racist unless it benefits me directly. And the eye candy and food I'm being offered certainly fits both of those things. So also, man, what a... The correct choice to make it based in the UK, because those old ladies are much more uh, open and honest and direct with that kind of thing uh, in the way that in the, the US they would have hidden behind euphemisms or whatever else. Same same overall point would have been made. But also, how can you I mean, it's Idris Elba, man. Like, what else are you going to do? <laughs> Sorry, I was distracted thinking about Idris Elba. Fair. <laughs> I was distracted again. Uh, but yeah, you bring up the UK thing and like, I could make an off-color joke here, but like, of course, where where, where else would somebody that's like obsessed with learning and uh, assimilating other people's cultures into a unifying theory, where else could they come from other than the United Kingdom? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is one of those things where I, so much of the details of this film are very smart. And, and do a lot to make these stories feel like more than stories. And I got to give Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton both a ton of credit for that because their chemistry, unbelievable. When you say that you can watch them talk in a hotel room for an entire 90-minute film, I 100% agree. If they like, yes, the visuals are striking and there are some really great visual moments as well as a couple of maybe not so great visual moments. Um, but if you were to just have the story of them talking to each other and the way that they bounced off of each other so naturally, I would have enjoyed that too. Like, I just want to hear Tilda Swinton and Indris Elba share stories for a night. Like, make that a podcast I can download, please. I would be so in. Um, and, and Idris really does a great job of the range that needs to be covered because he needs to be integrated into these different stories that all have slightly different tones, um, all have this kind of tragic element to it, um, but also needs to portray the flaws of his character. And that is, the Jin is flawed. He is not presented as some perfect answer, 
which is part of, I think, why Alethea grows to fall in love with him over the story, because she feels that that's real, right? Like, yes, it is a, you know, not fairy tale romance, but a very fantastical romance, one could say, because it is a literal jinn here, and it is using jinn magic in order to make it happen. But it's also grounded in a character that feels real, whose flaws are understandable and human, uh, despite the more magical nature of his abilities. Um, and Tilda Swinton does a really good job bouncing off of that as well. You know, her character has very clear quirks, but she's able to laugh at herself about it. You know, she says that she's happy to be on her own, and there is a level of self-sufficiency to her and uh, strength that she is able to maintain in the face of this being. You know, she holds her own and pushes back on him and challenges him and, you know, is very willing to uh, dismiss him at multiple points until she finds the thing in him that clicks with what she didn't know that she was missing anymore. And I, I think that that's, I, I think both of them needed to, uh, to play their characters basically pitch perfectly in order to make all of that work as well as it could, as it did. It could have very easily been trite or shallow or forced or whatever. And it's not. It works. I, it's believable in a story that is so fantastical in nature. And I give a lot of credit to both of them for that. I will say that the, the playing off of each other is essential in a movie that, you know, no, no offense to the other, uh, other members of the cast, the other actors in this, but this is, this is truly a, a two person show. This is, this is a dynamic duo. And if there isn't that chemistry and there is, there is numerous different types of interactions between the two of them. I, it's, it's fairly, um, you know, parallel because you think of the 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 two women that the Jin cares about, and even the third one. You know, the the, the three women. We'll even include Sheba in this because there's three different phases to the Jin. There's his relationship with Sheba, which is is he's in love with her. This this is a lover type relationship. Uh, then there's the relationship uh, with um, uh, Gulten, who is the concubine, where it's it's more of a protector. He is very much more. I don't want to say fatherly figure, but very much more of the like protector role with her and, and being honorable and, and, you know, trying to, to do what he's supposed to, but also provide for her, you know, the, the best and keep her safe. And then the third of sort of the, the, um, the, the friend and teacher, um, with, with Zephyr. And you get all three of those versions of the djinn sort of intermixing with this relationship with Alethea, you know, at, at some points he's he's being more scholarly and being this teacher as they're, you know, discussing uh, discussing Einstein and discussing uh, sort of the honor of being a jinn and, and the other jinn stories and, and, you know, that sort of nature. Um, you know, he's being more protective when he's trying to, you know, find out more information about her, but he's not proby. He doesn't go too far. He doesn't, like, push to be like, well, what happened between you and your husband? It's it's very clinical, very, you know, he's trying to learn about her so he can help her make the best decision and protect, you know, what she actually wants out of her wish. And then obviously they, they fall in love. But I think it's really key is like the difference between the story of Gulten and, and uh, Mustafa and the story between the Jinn and Alethea is that Alethea wishes for both of them to fall in love with each other. This isn't, I want, I'm forcing you to fall in love with me. It's, I want us both to. And I think there's something to that, something of, of kind of like a dual consent that makes a lot more sense and makes the wish less, uh, less dangerous than the one of Gulten. And then, Chase, we do get to this ending um, of sorts because... You could have black screened a couple of times in this movie and sure said Fian, and it would have been over. All um, stories must come to an end, they said, with ten minutes left in the film. 
hey, there could have been a 10 minute, you know, credits and a post credit scene and, and, you know, so on and so forth. And, <laughs> could you imagine uh, a post credit scene? They're teasing the Jin cinematic universe. <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> Listen, I just found out the other day that there are post credit scenes in Rick and Morty. I didn't know that. <laughs> so. Oh. Yeah, I didn't know. I, didn't I think know. that's been there since season one, right? It's, like, it's been there for a while, apparently. I just found that out. Melissa was like, how did you not know this? I'm like, how did I not know this? She's like, well, you normally get to the credits and you shut it off. So I'm like, ah, yeah, that makes sense. It. Makes sense. But uh, this isn't a Rick and Morty podcast. Um, <laughs> but yes, we have we have this moment. You know, they, they show a couple of times Alethea coming home and the gin, you know, sitting there waiting and they talk about their days. And, and obviously we mentioned the scene earlier where she goes back to her racist neighbors and offers them some, um, I'm going to guess, Arabian treat. I, I don't know what that is necessarily. But she describes it the same way that the gin described it to her. And they, they taste it and they find it delicious. And then Idrisalba appears. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm her man. Um, I hope you're okay with that. And they're like, yeah, we're okay with that. So she finally comes home and she's looking for the gin. And I, I don't know if you noticed, but once they did get to London, the scenes, you start seeing some of the little, the little particulates, the dust and everything. And very much when she comes home this this final time, quote unquote, you do, you see all of these sort of just like shiny dust particles. And I thought, Oh, that's that's kind of interesting. Like, oh, I wonder what that is. I wonder what that is. And then I was remembering to when he was first trapped by Solomon, how he enters the uh, the the jar, the the container that he is stored in initially. Is it is? It's this very you know shiny, sparkly, glittery sand. And then as she goes to find him, you see where it kind of all leads to to the basement. And she goes down into the basement, and there is the gin you know, uh, turning to dust. He's, yeah, he's, turning he's to dust. Full on getting thanos um, Yes. And then she makes her second witch, which is, I wish you could speak again. Which obviously that means he has to like reform and can't be dust anymore. And, um, you know, it, it sort of is a way around like, hey, I wish you weren't dead anymore. Uh, clever. I, I think it's very interesting that she would just want to talk to him, not I wish you were back alive, uh, because I think that violates one of the rules, if, if I'm not mistaken. Doesn't and then, which was smart. This film knows what it's doing. It it sticks to its rules. Its rules are weird, but it does stick to them. And you know, there's something to be said for that. In anything, in any any fiction, in anything, you could make. I, I think there's a joke about like Star Trek or something, where like Star Trek is the most fantastic. You know, it, it, it's it's crazy. They come up with all these wild things, but there are rules, and as long as you stick to those rules and you're within the confines of what everyone agrees to, the the viewers, the fans, everyone agrees. These are the rules. As long as you stay within those guidelines, you could do whatever the fuck you want with your with your piece uh again man i'm not i'm not i'm not going that it's like with star wars where there's there's rules about the force and then if all of a sudden you pull out your ass like oh yeah the force you can heal things you can heal people with the force then everybody goes like wait what the fuck this is no this isn't no this doesn't match anything that we've known before this is outside the boundaries what what are you doing here um and then they have this very beautiful conversation where Alethea apologizes and that she made a mistake and that she shouldn't have, have forced him or her to, to fall in love and that, you know, as wonderful as all of this has been, um, she needs to let go. She needs to let him go home because staying is killing him. Because, again, there, there are consequences for all wishes. There is a consequence for forcing someone to fall in love with you. So, having saved him with her second wish, she then uses her third wish to set him free. And then the movie continues. Yeah, <laughs> because, then we keep because going. that's a perfect ending. But yeah, there's 10 minutes left. Let's do something else. So, okay, they have to show that she is, she, you know, puts his stuff away into a box on the shelf down in the basement. And they have to show that she 
is fine with that ending. That she accepts that it's that ending, and and she she goes back and journals again about him and, and draws him and tells their story in this journal, which I assume is that she did it so that she could eventually publish it because. If you studied stories for so, so long, eventually, you're probably going to want to write one of, of your own. Well, and it's a callback to the uh, imaginary friend that she had, who she had created in school when she was having a hard time. And she wrote a book about him and then got embarrassed about it and burned it. And so this yes. is her going back to that and being like, well, actually, I can embrace this. The story matters, even... If it was somehow all in my head, it matters and is worth preserving. And that is character growth. It's, it's, it's uh, it, between that and the way that she feels much more peace, you can see in the shot of her putting the box away compared to when she did the same thing with her ex-husband. Um, there's a, a lot of, hey, look at her. She's grown from this experience. She's going to be okay. And then the film keeps going again. <laughs> And then the djinn comes walking over the hill towards her. You're goddamn right. Three years later, the djinn's around. And look, I I get it. I understand. It is a kind of that that traditional trope um, of like the like the love interest living on in spirit. And in this case, he is a literal spirit now, able to go to the realm of the djinn. Uh, and so him coming back to spend time with her every now and then is a very sweet moment. But more than that, right, it is a culmination of the theme that is run through this entire story, which is what is the role of stories and mythology in specific in the modern world? And the answer is that while she has to live a modern existence that is largely removed from those stories, every now and then she gets to go back to it. Because the jinn can't stay forever and can't fill the role that he used to have because the world is different now. But he can still have a place. He still matters. The story still matters. That is a really important note for the film to have. And honestly, I, th I just wish that they'd kind of condensed maybe the first two kind of fake endings to focus on that one because that's what's important, right? They could have just had her like writing in the book and she looks up and he's there and they have their thing and we do it that way. We didn't really need the rest of it, but it does tie in to that larger theme that permeates the film. And it's a good one. It's an important one, I think. Obviously, I'm a little biased. I have a master's in English literature, so I'm a big story guy. I, I'm going to be on the side of stories still matter, even with science being what it is. But I did, I did like how that all came together. I wish the execution had maybe been a little sharper, but the themes are on point. And I, I think that's something that you can say, any of the things that you can criticize this film for, and it is not a perfect film by any means, what it's trying to do, the ambition that it has, and the things it is trying to say, those stand out. Those matter and keep you invested um so i did like that as the closing note there it's a it's a movie about relationships and sort of our responsibility to those relationships you know uh the jinn obviously has personal feelings for you know, everyone, that every one of the stories that he tells, you know, even though he's part of them, whether it's a, a very small part, um, you know, such as the, the story of the two brothers or whether it's a much larger role in the stories of, uh, of Sheba and Gultan and, uh, and Zephyr. And it's one of those things where, you know, pe people really think about, you know, oh, you know, when I die, I don't, I just want to be remembered. And, you know, that it's one of those things. And how you're remembered, you're not remembered, you know, because there's a photo on the wall. You're not remembered because you left everybody a billion dollars or whatever. It doesn't matter how many rockets you send into space. What matters is the stories that other people tell about you. The mythology that is created about who you are as a person. And 
over time they either get get spread more widely and more fantastical and and so on and so forth or they sort of fade and and into legend and is are whispered or you know just shared among you know very few important individuals and that you learn from those stories and you can learn all these things and you know Alethea despite initially with with the wish I could I can say oh yeah she learned from the story of uh, of Gulten by saying I wish both of us fall in love together uh, the reality is is she doesn't learn from that story until she sees the consequence of that action and the real thing that she learns is you can't you can't force love you can't force that you can't force yourself into a uh, uh, a romance for the ages, a tale as old as time. And the reality of by her then stepping back, she creates an even more fantastical and greater story with an even better lesson to learn down the road. And then the story doesn't actually end. And that's really, you know, that's what the ending then leads to is she thinks the story is over. And then this tall man, a, a djinn, wearing a, a giant red coat and gloves comes climbing over the hill and she gets to continue her happily ever after. Even if it's not every single day, she still gets to have that little bit of, you know, little bit of happiness. And she is rewarded for the, the lessons that she learned and, and for giving the djinn ultimately his freedom. Um, it's lovely. It, it, and I agree, it is not a perfect movie. There are definitely some some things the you know the random other gin that prop up in her life absolutely uh, make no sense i don't know why it's in there at all other than to just be like yeah there's more than one gin in the world like okay cool um the the scene going through the airport again is is just if you forget that he's you know electromagnetic waves and particles it's sort of you know just floats over your head and you go why are we so focused on this like it would have been different maybe if he had been standing in the scene and like as they got near the the x-ray machine i I guess maybe that would be too obvious then but but yeah it's not a perfect movie but it's it's definitely an enjoyable one and it tells it tells a number of good stories but overall itself is a is a pretty decent story um chase any final thoughts and any what would you suggest that the viewer that the listeners go and seek out this movie and watch it and maybe spend more than three dollars on their ticket? Yeah, I would recommend this. I give it an eight out of ten. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I you know, I, I think that for me, I would much rather have a film that doesn't always hit, but that is taking big swings and has something it really wants to say over a film that is competently executed but doesn't have much ambition beyond being competently executed. This film tries things. This film has really interesting moments. This film has clear themes and messages that it wants to explore, and it doesn't always do so as effectively as it could, but it tries. You can tell there's a lot of love and passion put into this film from everyone who worked on it, and some incredible leading performances really do carry the parts that might be otherwise seen as weaker. I, I wish that this film had more of a natural audience. I understand why it wasn't given the same level of marketing that maybe I would have liked it to, because it's a hard one to pin down. It is a hard one to explain what it is that you're going to go see. But if you've listened to this and any of this sounds interesting to you, I think you're going to have a really good time. I think you're not going to see anything quite like it this year. And that alone makes it worth investing some time and energy into. I've mentioned before how I, I like the, the junk food films, the, you know, the Fast and the Furious, the just kind of dumb action movies. Obviously, enjoy the Marvel movies and, and you know... I'm not going to say that they're works of uh, of literary mastery or anything like that. They're they're good action movies. I like a, a good, dumb action movie. And a movie like this reminds me that 
I don't just like those movies. That I do like some of these higher flute and more art house. I don't want to say Oscar bait because I this this didn't feel Oscar baity to me. But this sort of is in that realm of you know like the power of the dog where it's like yeah you know what I I actually can just enjoy a film that's being a film and not a spectacle something that is being a narrative and a story and that you sit down for two hours and you kind of just lose yourself to it and you allow it to to take over and just consume you um i i would agree eight out of ten i definitely would say if you get the chance please please go watch it if you can see it in theaters as the director george miller said at the beginning of it uh, please go see it in theaters the way it was intended to be seen um i, I guess maybe that's a little uppity little classes you know whatever but if you got a chance go see it in theaters if not i'm sure it will be on a streaming platform somewhere and you'll be able to watch it at home um you know with your friends with your loved ones you know pick pick go see it with someone it's about relationships for god's sake take your dog to see it i i don't care <laughs> go see it with someone and you know you guys will be you guys will have a better relationship friendship partnership whatever you want to call it uh, uh for seeing it i i can't speak any higher of it um again not a perfect movie i'm not even going to pretend it is but it, it was highly enjoyable i'm really glad that chase suggested it and we went to watch it and now i think this means that for the next podcast we have to just we have to watch like transformers 3 right <laughs> We will we will talk about uh, what it is. I actually uh, have a movie in mind, but we'll save it for uh, some post podcast talk right now. Should I plug some pluggables? Is now the time? Absolutely, absolutely. Please, please plug your pluggables, Chase. Great. Uh, you can find me at Chase Wassenaar on Twitter. You can find the podcast at Rough Drafts Pod. Uh, every week that we're not doing this. Uh, you can find us doing Steam Cleaners, a gaming podcast. We review two sh uh, games that we've been playing um, that week. Uh, it's a fun time, and I love getting to uh, hear everybody's thoughts about the things that we play or watch. So please do uh, hit us up. If you've seen the film, uh, you, then I'd love to hear what you think about it. Uh, if you haven't seen the film... Go see the film, man. We're in with that. We've done more advertising for this film than I think MGM did. So we're uh, so uh, thanks for listening and, and go check all those things out. And don't worry, guys, the invoice is in the mail. It, it's really respectable rates. Listen, we kept it under an hour, so you don't have to give us the full hourly rate. But I think it was really respectable. And uh, I can't wait to work with you guys in the future. Uh, that being said, we are not paid for any of our reviews, any of our thoughts. Uh, we do this because Chase and I love to talk to each other. And we love to talk to each other about movies. Uh, with that being said, you guys can find me at C80s underscore LOL uh, if you want to uh, talk to me about the glorious movie that is Transformers 3. Uh, but as Chase said... We're going to talk off uh, off microphone here, figure out what we're going to talk about next. Come back next week for Steam Cleaners, two weeks for another episode of Final Cut. And until then, goodbye, Internet. <laughs>